Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to talk with Deborah Kasdan about her new book, Roll Back the World, a sister's memoir. Threaded throughout this love letter to her older sister are stories of four siblings and their parents. Each one walks a tightrope between self-care and deep concern for Rachel, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 25. It takes 30 years and numerous admissions to five psychiatric hospitals before a compassionate social worker finally catches a glimpse of the poet inside her and discovers a way to assist her in living on her own. As the second sibling, Deborah Kazdan struggled for decades with painful emotions of grief, shame, and survivor's guilt before deciding to share her story and her family's. Deborah Kazdan had a 35-year career writing about business and technology before retiring and joining the Westport Writers' Workshop to make her personal stories come alive. She's served on the board of directors of uh, an intergenerational housing organization and the National Organization on Mental Illness, or NAMI, in southwest Connecticut. She's a passionate swimmer, grandmother of four. And during the summer, she and her husband reside near Nosset March of Cape Cod and live the rest of the year in Norwalk, uh, Connecticut. Deborah Kazdan, uh, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so excited to be in Utah virtually. <laughs> uh, it's, it's great to have you on. Uh, 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 great book and uh, very, very timely. Um, government estimates... Um, state that 14 million adults had serious mental illness in 2021. So this look at uh, your sister and her family, you know, very, you know, is a story writ large across the country. Indeed, indeed. Um, it, it's a very prevalent, prevalent problem, but, you know, more, more pressing is the need to come up with um, better treatment and uh, better recovery uh, models. And that's what I, I show in, in, in my book at, at the end how how outpatient and community care finally helped Rachel. It was a long journey. Yeah, we'll get into that as well. It, it, it is somewhat hopeful that some of these uh, programs. Um, I want to start where you do in your in your book. It's so poignant. I've known some people, you know, fairly up close with serious mental illness, um, but not in my family, and I didn't know them before. Um, uh-huh. And so you write, I'll never forget Rachel's return from Israel. This is 1960s. You write, she walked uh-huh. into our house with her blazing blue eyes, newly bronze skin. She, you said she glowed. Uh, tell me about Rachel before her illness. Well, Rachel was uh, quite a powerhouse in terms of her, her adventurousness. Uh, she loved to read. She loved to art, drawing, uh, music poetry, and uh, she was very committed to causes, civil rights causes, and when she graduated high school, she decided she wanted to go to Israel, Um, and she worked on the kibbutz, and that's why she just, she looked so healthy, and she loved hiking. She hiked across the northern Galilee. She uh, went on a long march to Jerusalem. She loved the outdoors, and she loved reading, and um she was just very creative. She, but she, she marched to her own drama. She, she was uh, uh, not a big conformist. She liked to do things her way. And she was a poet. She wrote a lot of poetry. Oh, she was. Um, she, I, I used to hear her in our bedroom typing away, clank, clank, clank. She was up all night, and she kept her, her poems in a journal. Uh, she loved Walt Whitman. Um, and she she read a lot of his poetry, and she got into reading the uh, French symbolist poetries, poetries Berlin, and uh, she even translated them. Um, so she was a very um, artsy, intellectual, but also very um, uh, strong and physical. I mean, she liked physical activities as well. You, uh, you, in fact, you have a Walt Whitman poem here as the epigraph uh, to the to the to the book. Why, why did you include oh, that? Oh, I do, I do it. I like that. It says, "Stranger, if you passing meet me and desire to speak to me, why should you not speak to me? And why should I not speak to you?" And to me, that just expresses the engagement that um, I think we all need to have with everybody around us. I mean, Walt Whitman was an example. He just walked and talked to everybody. Um, and, you know, I feel there, in the end of the book, I talk about the people who, who did engage with Rachel, and they made 
such a difference. Um, so to me, that's what it, it's about, engagement with people of all, all types, whether they're the same as you or whether they're different. Whether uh, so this book is not only about Rachel, but the, the family, the impact on the, on the family, which is important. Um, when did you first, um, I guess, notice or realize, recognize that, uh, that yeah. Rachel had a problem? Yeah. I, I mean, she was always kind of moody, and she could get very angry, especially at our parents. And, you know, I always thought that's Rachel. And, and then as she got into adolescence, she got kind of rebellious. Um, so my parents were complaining about be- her behavior when she came back from Israel because she wasn't staying put. Uh, she went to New York, stayed on the Lower East Side. She went to San Francisco, um, and she just didn't. She just didn't seem to have um, any consistency to her behavior, any goals that she wanted to, to pursue. She seemed very impulsive. But I thought they were putting her down for just you know being an adolescent and you know, wanting to figure things out. But she did come back once from um, San Francisco. Her boss, uh, a lawyer, had called my parents and, and told her she was in bad shape. But I didn't know what that meant. We, uh, she was in the bedroom, and she, she kind of leaned over and confided in me that two men had followed her uh, from New York City, where she'd been last, uh, and they were in the park following her in San Francisco. And I said, Rachel, how can how how could people you know follow you all the way from New York to San Francisco? And she didn't want to talk about it more, but I could see that she was very very scared. And I realized something was wrong just by the look in her eye and, and the way she behaved. Um, so that's when I realized that maybe my parents were right that that she needed some help and maybe something was wrong. I never dreamed it would end up where it did, though, her her situation. She was diagnosed with schizophrenia? Yes, yes, paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah. And you write that, uh, I didn't understand this, you write that there are some quote-unquote positive symptoms and there are uh, quote-unquote negative symptoms. Rachel Uh, mainly exhibited the negative. Maybe you could explain the positive and the negative symptoms. Yeah. Well, the most... The most um, prominent pro- positive system is auditory hallucinations or hearing voices. Um, and so, you know, when you see somebody and they're obvious, now with phones, you can't tell anymore, but it used to be that if somebody was talking and nobody was around, um, you know, you assume they were talking to voices in their head. And so that's the most positive, uh, obvious symptom. The negative symptoms are... Um, a lack of affect or expression, a lack of motivation, just kind of sitting around like a blob, not being willing uh, to, not getting organized, having some thought disorders, but um, being quiet about them. I mean, Rachel had, did not express what she was thinking. It, it's this flat affect, um, the lack, lack of uh, ability to uh, experience joy experience pleasure um so it's that kind of withdrawal uh you write that uh, rachel so much was lost by the time she died uh, i'll quote from the book her health and beauty huge swaths of intelligence and creative power worst of all the joy in the family life um how did the how did the schizophrenia affect rachel i think one one effect was i guess as some some people do with this disease let, let their hygiene go, right? So she, for one example, right. she was not allowed on the bus. Yeah. When she lived in uh, Oregon, uh, she, uh, they, uh, okay, they found her in a nice little home in the, in the woods on the Willamette River, but she needed a bus to get into town. And yeah, they wouldn't let her. She was too disruptive. But I, I do want to say a lot of what was lost was not just it, due to the the illness itself, but to the medication she received. Mm. Um, I mean, there's lots of evidence now that a lot, that especially the the, early, the medication she received in the 60s, which was the first generation, just you know wiped out you know a, a lot of a lot of uh, the cognitive abilities. So it's really hard. You know, I talked to psychiatrists about this. It's really hard to 
to um, determine how much was lost due to the illness and how much was uh, lost to over-medication. So in this era, 1960s, when Rachel was diagnosed, um, years later, you're in therapy, and and your and your your therapist trying to help you to get over survivor's guilt, right? And the therapist right. is saying experts didn't have a clue at that point, right? Tell me a little bit about what uh, I guess the cure almost worse than the disease at that point. Um, yeah, no, nobody knew, and and so lots of mistakes were made by my families by trusting doctors who who made mistakes because they didn't know what to do. Um, you know, they were using the latest scientific advances, but, you know, they don't work for some people. But um, so, you know, that was the problem. Um, I'm sorry, what, what, what exactly was your question? Uh, yeah, maybe tell me a little bit more about what was known. I guess not much was known then. We, we've learned so much more since then. Well, they start, they were they were looking at chemical. They were looking at you know the chemistry of the brain and trying to find the medications. But the, the medications were hit or miss. Um, what was known and is still known is that it is <clears throat> there is a genetic um, a factor in this. Uh, you know, people with um, schizophrenia in the family uh, do have uh, a greater chance. But of course, um, but what what then became clear to researchers is that not that there are factors that influence whether or not these this genetic um, component will take effect um, and that's called epigenetics uh, epigenetics is the um, the impact of the environment on the DNA code as opposed to what the code actually is itself and so you know, some people can have the same genetics and not become um, become uh, mentally ill like this. Uh, so, what are the facts? So, they're they're looking at factors uh, in early childhood trauma, stress on uh, parents before birth can affect can affect uh, the uh, the genetic expression. Uh, so there's a lot more work on this epigenetic front early, and you hear a lot about early trauma too. Um, and I get into that into the book a lot. I have a whole section on Rachel's earliest years uh, and what that was like. So it's not like the old, you know, analytic view that you have these suppressed issues, but it's um, actually on the, the resilience of of the uh, of a child's development in terms of going through. Uh, developmental stages. So it's very complex. It, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, uh, you just mentioned that. Uh, maybe I'll treat this now. Uh, uh, you have a section in the book, as you mentioned, called epigenetics. Um, mm -hmm. you, as Rachel was born, you say, during World War II in a stressful family situation. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, right after my parents got married and my mother got pregnant, my dad was drafted. This World War II, yeah, and uh, he uh, he served overseas at first, and he, um, my mother moved to to live with his family. She had been in Chicago; she moved to Cleveland, um, and to live with her in-laws. And he was he was working stateside for a while, but then he got shipped to Italy, and he was uh, uh, fighting on the Italian front. And she, my mother, was home with a new baby and in-laws that she really did not get along with. Um, and there was a lot of stress between her and her sisters-in-law. She, she did get along. Um, her father-in-law, my grandfather, was wonderful with Rachel, and Rachel, in fact, thought uh, he was her father, um, even though my mother kept a picture of, 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 the, of, of, of my dad, of course, for Rachel to see. But, you know, still, it was the grandpa who hugged her every day when he came home from work. And then my father came back from Italy, and, you know, here he had been in combat, and, you know, we can imagine what he had gone through, and here he's got this, you know, instant family. Um, and my mother had her own needs because she had been abandoned as a child, and, you know, she was pretty needy emotionally. Um, and I think it was a difficult family situation. They did move out of the in-law home, 
and and they got um, some kind of makeshift housing. Uh, but I think the my mother's needs uh, were great, and my father, you know, was just trying to get his footing. He had to start his career, and and he had this new family, and you know, Rachel just needed a daddy, and you know, she kind of and taken away from the family that she knew, the extended in-law family, she had no problems getting along with them. And so I think that was a very rough situation. And then there was a lot of moving around after that uh, due to my father's career and his political activities. And um, that was a lot of stress. You um, you mentioned political activities. You write that your parents were pretty, <laughs> pretty far left uh, to the yeah. point where the FBI showed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, during, after World War One, the uh, left-wing parties had a lot of sway on college campuses. And I think my father, who came from a conservative family, was kind of radicalized. And it was uh, during the Spanish um, Civil War uh, that was a big flashpoint uh, in terms of the political consciousness of young people then. Um, he didn't go, although he had scared his parents and said he was going to go, but he didn't. He went to graduate school instead. Um, but then, uh, you know, they, they, were, they signed up for some of the more progressive causes. Um, uh, civil liberties was one, and some of the, the leftist candidates, socialist candidates. Um, and some of these were considered communist front organizations. And uh, so they were on the FBI's list. And my, you know, father may have been joined for a time when he was in college. Uh, the FBI said he, he, he was a member. He never said he was a member to me, but in the FBI files he was of the, of the Communist Party. And, um, and so they were on the FBI list and, and every time my parents moved with us, the uh, FBI, uh, let them know that they were still watching them. And, of course, their goal was to get my parents to talk about, to name names. That was a big thing then. You know, who, who, you know who's in this organization? Who, who do you think may be a communist? And they wouldn't talk to them. But uh, when we, shortly after we moved to St. Louis, um, it was during Khrushchev's, uh, Nikita Khrushchev's speech to the United Nations, and uh, we were watching it on TV, and uh, there's a knock on the door, my mother opens it and steps out into the hall. We were in a, an apartment building at that point. Um, and, we hear, and we saw there were two men in suits and hats. Uh, this is pretty early in the, in the 60s. And uh, it was the FBI. And, you know, we thought it was funny because here we were watching Khrushchev on TV. I mean, that was the first time we had ever done that, and the FBI showed up. But then she just... Yeah, so we made a big joke of it. But, you know, Rachel was older than me and my brother and, of course, my little sister. Uh, and I think she took it much more seriously. And you know what? That may even have played into her paranoid fears about people following her. I did check the FBI files. I mean, I knew she, she didn't have one, and, and they didn't have one. So they, I confirmed that they really were not following her. Um, but, you know, having lived through that and having been old enough to kind of sense it might have affected her. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break. Um, we'll come back with much more of Rachel's story and the family's story, uh, which is told in the new book by Deborah Kasdan, Roll Back the World, a sister's memoir. Uh, more following this brief break. I'm Jay Allison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll explore the hip and sophisticated music of Spain today. From the Catalonian coast to the Galician mountains and into the clubs of Madrid and Barcelona. La curva de la carretera. 
Rosalie Howarth. Join me for Spotlight on Spain, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is Deborah Kazdan. Her new book is called Roll Back the World, a sister's memoir. Uh, it's a story about her older sister, Rachel, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 25 and uh, took 30 years, numerous admissions to five psychiatric hospitals before a compassionate social worker finally caught a glimpse of the poet inside of uh, Rachel, discovered a way to assist her in living on her own. Uh, the book's also about its effect on the family. Uh, Roll Back the World is the title of, of the book. Uh, Deborah Keston, I know in, in this book you wanted to capture Rachel's voice, important to you. How, how did you? How were you able to accomplish that? Well, uh, two, two ways: uh, through her letters and her poems. Um, I included uh, a, a poem in each section of the book, uh, six of them, I think. And um, I also took little snippets of her letters as part of the narrative. Um, See, you, you dropped out a little bit there. Is that better? Uh, yeah, that's better. Yeah. Um, my parents kept every letter that they received from their four children through, you know, throughout wow. camp and school and everything, and, and when Rachel was away. So I had lots of letters from her, and I had her poetry. And, um, and she also sent me her journals and more of her writing, for safekeeping when she when uh, she was uh, when she went uh, when she left the family area, so I had I had quite a bit of content from her, um, and and I felt that was the best to and I used it verbatim. I, I put the poems verbatim and, and quoted from her her letters and journals verbatim. What was that like uh, diving into that? Uh, and uh, did, did the did the Rachel you know. You know, shine through. I guess the, you know that this would have been affected by her, by her illness. But uh, did we see the? the oh Rachel yeah, Eden? yeah. She did. She would come up with these phrases, and uh, you know, uh, and, and you could just hear her. She had this way of talking that was so, um, so blunt and and so incisive. Um, and she she just told it as it was, and that shone through. Her poetry was in, in her letters and comments to people. Her um, letters were more. I mean, her poetry was more lyrical, um, and that that um, in that she achieved a, a, an expression of her her dreams and her uh, and her disappointments. I would say in a lyrical way, um, but I, I did. Feel a little. I did get to feel close to her, and it almost felt like I was in a dialogue with her in a strange kind of way. And that must have been—I don't know—you know, good, cathartic. I don't know. Yeah, it was painful. I—I I mean, there was a lot. I—it's why it took me so long. It took me years to write this. Um, you know, I couldn't do it for—I couldn't sustain it for a long t- period of time because it was so painful, um, and. To see what she was asking and how her needs were not met, and how I, uh, you know, I wasn't able to give her anything that she needed either because I was so involved with my own life, my career, and my family. So it was very painful, and that was the survivor's guilt. Um, and I don't think I could have gotten through it without um, help myself from a therapist. So you know, you know, I could go to her office and cry, and she would tell me, well, you know, people, like like you said before, people didn't know the answers then. Um, and, you know, you hear that, but it takes it takes repetition and more more talk and processing for that to sink, to sink in. And then by actually writing it and being in a kind of conversation with her of sorts, that's what became cathartic. And now, you know, opening up and talking about it, and, you know, that was my mission when I started, was to um, just stop, stop the, the staying so silent, and by, by uh, writing about it and reading what I wrote in my, in my um, writing workshops, and, you know, people didn't <laughs> dash for the door, they listened and they were moved, and, and getting it all down, um, 
and and opening up and you know and letting Rachel letting Rachel appear on the page and to the world and now talking about it even with you it's it, it's difficult but yet it's something that I feel is important and in that way I, you know I feel like um, she's getting a little bit of the justice and attention she didn't get when when she was alive um, so yeah that's so it's cathartic in that sense. Um. I, today, I think maybe um, you can tell me that, that people are more willing to talk about this. Back in the day, did uh, I don't know if you tried to reach out to people or mention they have a sister with mental illness. Uh, maybe that would have helped to, to talk to people. Yeah, you know, I think there's still a reluctance. I mean, I was met somebody on a walk, uh, and I told her I was writing a book about uh, my sister's mental illness. She said, "Oh." I, I have a, a brother who's schizophrenic. And then when I mentioned it to our other friends who had introduced us, she said, and she had known her for years. So of course she said, I never knew that. You know, it's hard to bring it up. Um, so, uh, you know, you can talk about ADD and for some reason bipolar is less stigmatized than schizophrenia. I'm not sure why. Um, I think there's still, you know, when it's especially when it's one of the severe illnesses, uh, it's it's still difficult to bring up in conversation. I mean, now that Rachel's not alive anymore, it's not so difficult. But when she was alive and uh, I wasn't going out to help her, I felt really, I felt really guilty. I mean, I had one friend who I could never tell because she was a social worker who was always taking care of needy people and. And I said, oh, what would she think of me if, you know, if I told her? And she, she would say, well, why aren't you, you know, why is she so far from home? What are you doing? And I never told her. And then when that friend moved away, you know, we had contact for a little bit, but you know, the relationship kind of fell apart. And I always thought if I had been able to be more open, we could have been closer in, in the relationship. With, and, you know, my relationship with a friend would have been stronger. So it's, it's uh, when it's, when it's a, a, a really severe illness, it's still hard to talk about. Um, but I, I think, it, all in all, there's a little bit more compassion and a little bit more understanding, and there's more awareness and more campaigns. Um, there's all kinds of mental health awareness uh, days. Um, and so people get the message intellectually, but I think there's still some reluctance to deal with what, the real problems are, uh, you know, for instance, housing and outpatient treatment. And there are a lot of people, I think, who would rather, and I, you know, I see this in comments and newspaper articles about homelessness, just put them in the hospital, get the medication. I don't want to see them. So, you know, that, that pains me. Um, and and uh, I want to treat that a little bit uh, later, just a couple of minutes. Uh, you know, the advances here, what what we now know, and and uh, treatment, uh, I guess that ha- that does work. Uh, but uh, first, I want to talk about um, family members' relationship with the with the person who's mentally ill. So, you know, your relationship with Rachel, uh, your brothers, you know, your 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 parents. Um, there's got to be a balance there, I, I, I would assume, right? And, and it's all yeah. shot through with guilt, I'm sure. But uh, you, you have your own life. You have your, your own needs you yeah. have to, to deal with. And then Rachel's are so overwhelming, her needs. Uh, how, do, how do you balance uh, those interactions? Yeah, it's different for everybody. And for me, I just, um, I had my career and my family. And, um, you know, I put, I put that first. Um, and my parents were glad um, that I did. They didn't want me, Rachel's condition, to take away from their children, children's lives. Um, so I think one way to do it now is through support groups like uh, NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness. You mentioned it before. And they have, um, they have free courses. You can sign up. Uh, there's one called Family to Family. And it's a 10-week course, and they go, you know, through lots of different ways to cope with that. Uh, so you can't do it alone. Uh, you have to reach out to people who understand and can reassure you that you're doing enough. 
uh, can help you um, if if you have um, financial responsibility, can help you find resources to set to set up trusts and that type of thing. There are a lot of things to look at. You know, one of the fears of siblings is that they're going to be left with the care with the primary you know care of of, of the sibling after the parents die. And I know that was certainly something I you know I thought about. As it turned out, Rachel predeceased her mother, but um, so you can't do it alone, and you just need people to talk to and people to support and to take. You know, and again, I would recommend that uh, NAMI course, uh, Family to Family, because they deal exactly with that: how you balance your needs, you know, with with your loved ones. By the way. Um... Your your father, one way he coped was jumping into you know I guess organizing. He he apparently helped start NAMI. Yeah, he was a community organizer from this uh, by profession. He he was a, a, a social worker who specialized in community work. And uh, when Rachel got sick, he found other parents and he organized a group. It wasn't called NAMI then; it was something else, schizophrenic parents or something. I forget. Um, and then in 70, when NAMI started, got organized in Wisconsin, he went up there, and he was one of the hosts for one of the meetings. Um, and then the St. Louis group became a very bit strong group, that, that, uh, and they, they became part of the, the NAMI network. And he was always um, proposing research and solutions. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, my... It, it wasn't enough for Rachel, and it wasn't soon enough for Rachel. So she she didn't she got the benefit of that for a while, but but not in the long run. Um, because one of the things that mental illness do is it kind of splits up the family, and um, you know my brother didn't think she was Rachel was getting the right treatment in the hospital, and he was right. I had agreed with him, but I didn't know what was better, and he had his own ideas that we. After my soul searching, we all agreed to, um, but they weren't the right solutions either. So, uh, yes, but yeah, my my father found a lot of um, satisfaction in in working with with Nami and working with other parents of, um, of of adult children with severe mental illness. Uh, you mentioned your brother. That was a poignant part of the story. Um, yeah, I think he he he, uh, he decided. Well, she's not getting the care she needs in the mental hospital. I'll take her out. I'll try to I'll try to help her myself, right? But then that's <laughs> that's overwhelming, right? And but you can see the impulse. Yeah, yeah, uh, not a good idea. I don't recommend it. Um, uh, but I mean, the situation was so dire. I, I didn't have full confidence that he could do what he said he could do. But yet, I, I had my gut feeling was that things couldn't be worse for Rachel than the way they were. I mean, she was sedated. She uh, she had the, by now these metabolic issues, diabetes, and he thought my brother thought they were just making the diabetes worse. Uh, and he did get her off insulin. I mean, he he consulted with doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists and social workers and. She was a little. She was a little better for a while, um, but that long range, just that hard work of of uh, outpatient support, uh, she didn't have time. To, you can't do that with a family member controlling your life like that. So, um, it didn't work out. And I think it, contrary to my original gut feeling, I think it did get worse because she was left far away from home. Uh, and she was uh, left on her own to get treatment. Um, my father died soon after my brother took took Rachel, and my and the rest of us we did think that that the uh, the state hospitals out in the Pacific Northwest were better than what we had in in, in Missouri, and so she was in and out of those. Um, and I think it it had a, a it was a big disappointment for everyone, and I think my brother was very hurt and um, himself traumatized by what happened. 
Yeah, it's 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 just you know, no matter what you do, that's the part of the pain of this. Um, let's take another break. We're talking with Deborah Kasdan. Her new book is called Roll Back the World, a sister's memoir. Uh, more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Hi, this is Steve Williams, and after more than 40 years as your local jazz host, I finally retired. But you can still tune in for a selection of jazz music every Sunday night from 6 to 10 p.m. It's the best of the best of jazz time with Steve Williams, curated by yours truly. And you can find it here each week on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Deborah Kasdan. Uh, her new book is called Roll Back the World, a sister's memoir. She talks about her sister Rachel, who was diagnosed in her 20s with uh, schizophrenia. Impact, of course, on Rachel and, and the family. Um, so Deborah Kasdan, I want to talk about uh, advances. Thankfully, there have been advances in, in treatment uh, in the ensuing years. Um, would would things have turned out differently for Rachel if she was diagnosed today, and, and how so? Oh, yeah, I think it wouldn't have gotten so bad. Um, I think the current generation of medication has much uh, fewer side effects, although there are still people who can't tolerate them and um, people who don't don't like taking them uh, because of the changes it brings. So, um, but she wouldn't have been so sedated, um, and I think now there are other programs that can help. They're not all that widespread, but they use they have uh, they have interventions that are more uh, less judgmental, more supportive. They use peer counseling. There's something called dialogic treatment, which is a uh, very open uh, open and non-judgmental kind of listening and support. Uh, not putting pressure on the person to get better under a certain time frame. Uh, there are there have been experiments with superior houses. These are uh, uh, crisis um, crisis uh, housing where there are support specialists as well as doctors. I mean peer support, people who have been in it and who can gain the trust of the person who's suffering. So. Um, Outpatient outpatient treatment is is much can be much better now. Fountain House is a national model for that, um, where you have supported uh, supportive uh, housing and socialization clubhouses where people can um, can uh, interact with with others. Uh, co- job coaching, coaching to stay in an apartment and. So you don't get in trouble. So that you you know you keep it sanitary. Uh, so these are the uh, so these recovery models are very important. And I think if she had had that instead of just being sent out of the hospital and dropped into a boarding house in the inner city where she was abused, she would not she wouldn't have received the type of trauma. Um, that said, there are people who. And there are survivors of, of the system who even today say that um, more needs to be done to prevent the, uh, the kind of coercion and trauma that comes with um, institutionalization and treatment in, in, in some cases. Now, there is, um, I think there is a perception out there, especially with uh, paranoid schizophrenia, um, a very small subset are, can be violent, right? How does that affect things? Yeah, there's there's a percentage, and it's you know, um, and these people have to you know ha- have to be uh, treated accordingly. Um, but there's but people with schizophrenia are certainly more uh, there's more violence against them by you know orders of magnitude than than order that than the violence they commit. Um, I mean, 
there are lots of risk factors for violence. I mean, you know, um, males commit more um, mass murders, for instance, than people with schizophrenia. I mean, that's a risk factor. So it, it, there's a tiny, a tiny, there is somewhat more violence from, from people. And it often occurs when they're, I mean, when it occurs, it's often because they've been taken off medication abruptly or, um, or uh, drugs are involved, um, you know, cocaine or, you know, other um, uh, non, non-medical drugs are involved or, they, they're, or, they're, um, or they're going cold turkey from either their medication or their drugs. So the, I think those are the factors that may, that may cause violence in, in those in those situations. Um, so based on your experiences, um, this would be valuable for people who are caring for a loved one with mental illness. What advice do you have? Well, as I said, don't go it alone. Um, you know, find, find support groups um, uh, and make sure that uh, your, your loved one is not traumatized in, in, in their treatment. Um, and, you know, don't lower your expectations a little bit. Don't expect your loved one to be the person they were before. You're going to grieve for them, uh, for who they were, but you've also got to show that you accept them for who they are now. I mean, if they've had a, um, a, a, a psychotic episode, for instance, it, you know, it, it's it's a big shock to the to the brain and the body, and they 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 need time to recover. So don't push, uh, don't do it alone, and grieve, but love the person you still have. Uh, we talked about this a little bit before. I wonder if you could um, say a little bit more about this. How do you balance caring for yourself, your family, with with the needs of your loved one with mental illness? Oh, that's got to be so individual for, for every family is different, you know. Every family is dysfunctional, as, as somebody said in their own way. Um, I think there's a good chance you're going to need therapy yourself to help decide that. Um, you're going to get all kinds of advice, and some of it will seem right and some won't. And I think you just need to <clears throat> dig deep um, and talk to somebody you can trust, you know, whether a a priest or a rabbi, a therapist, um, about how much you can give, um, and and I think you'll you'll get the support that way, and uh, and if you can find other ways to get the support for your loved one, I mean, so we were four siblings, and you know when I couldn't visit Rachel, my my younger sister who didn't have children then was able to go more frequently. So, you know, find ways to share the, the, the you know, the challenges and the burdens um, and, and talk it through with people you trust about how much you can give. There's no one easy answer. Just a couple, two or three minutes left. Um, I want to return to, to Rachel, Rachel the person, right, even through the mental illness um, you, you, the title of the memoir is Roll Back the World. What, where does that come from? Oh, that's from a line of her poetry it, that she wrote. Um, it, it's where she's, watch, she's walking the beach at night, and I like to think it was the Mediterranean from when she was in Israel. And the last stanza begins, Roll back the world, for so I have been free, with a crab in the sea and my shadow on the moonlit beach. And I think that expresses so much of Rachel to me. Um, she knew she was in a special place, and she just needed a little patch of light, of sand, uh, without all the pressures of the world uh, coming in on her. And um, I was glad I was able to find that and, and express that for her in this book. Yeah, it's wonderful, very poignant. Um, so just about a, a minute uh, left. Um, she ended up in Oregon, right? In, in the weeks, I guess, months before she died, uh, you write that she she found a little community up there. She went returned to her Jewish roots and uh, found a, a community. 
Yeah, this was something she did on her own. The caseworker who helped her so much said, "I, you know, she didn't even want me involved in this. She just got herself to a synagogue. Um, they were a little uh, weary of her at first because of her hygiene. They told her to go clean up, and she came back, and she was all showered, her hair clean, and they honored her. Uh, uh, they gave her, they brought her up to the pulpit." And uh, and she uh, led led the congregation in prayers, and you know I I mean I just get goosebumps still thinking about it that this this was a very, uh, a group of women uh, who were able to accept Rachel and bring her into their community. Uh, finally, what has this done for you? This whole process, I need a lot of pain, I'm sure you know dredged up, but uh, in the end, uh, what has this uh, writing this book done for you? Well, it, it has relieved me of some of that sense of guilt that I had and of, of not being able to help her. Um, and it has made me more aware of issues today. And, um, and I'm more involved in advocating for, um, for, for recovery programs, uh, outpatient programs, uh, alternatives to heavy medication and reliance on that. So I'm, I've become more aware of, of what's happening now and feel that I can lend a voice to support some of these issues. Well, the book is Roll Back the World, a sister's memoir. The author, Deborah Kasdan, has been with us. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. I enjoyed speaking with you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. This is Wild About Utah. I'm a fledgling birder with a less than soaring life list. However, after being inspired this summer by the amazing new Merlin app my dad and brother introduced me to, I wanted to learn more. When preparing to start another year teaching second grade at USU Edith Bowen Lab School, I decided to integrate birding into my curriculum. I knew that studying birds could be as simple or as complex as I desired, which seemed perfect to help all my students make learning gains and make special discoveries throughout the year. I reached out to Hillary and Jack, who are local experts and members of the Bridgerland Audubon Society. They were happy to meet with me, give me resources, and help me brainstorm ways to make the world of birding come to life for my students. However, the fun really started when I kicked off everything in my classroom. There was immediate buy-in from my students, and as soon as I had 25 bright-eyed second graders all screeching, Conklery! of a red-winged blackbird, I knew I was hooked as well. My sequence of instruction which usually lasts about a week per bird, starts by utilizing AI technologies and the Cornell Lab's comprehensive birding website to develop an informational and narrative passage about a specific bird, which is used to address language arts standards. After this, students create a writing piece about the bird, which sometimes is informational, but sometimes is a creative piece that incorporates characteristics or habits of the bird. We incorporate mathematics in meaningful, context-based ways that has some relationship to the bird, for example, our class learned that black-capped chickadees can remember over a thousand seed hiding places. Therefore, students created and solved a fun math problem. If a black-capped chickadee had 1,000 seeds hidden and during the winter ate 20 seeds a day, how many days can she eat until her seeds run out? Finally, each student makes a single page on that specific bird that goes in their journal. Each page requires the student to draw a picture of the bird, label three distinguishing parts, create an onomatopoeia for the sound, and write two interesting facts about the birds. To bring the birding knowledge to life, we developed multiple field experiences aimed at observing birds and identifying them. So far, kids have found the black-capped chickadee, red-winged blackbird, Townsend solitaire, and red-breasted nuthatch. These birding experiences give students a new sense of purpose and intentionality in the field. We recently went to King's Nature Park in North Logan's Green Canyon, where they made discoveries with their eyes, ears, and even binoculars. As we trudged up a slope, one kid glanced to the side of the trail and noticed bundles of small, bluish-purplish juniper berries clung to their host, and, recalling a fact they had read in class, announced, Look, juniper berries! I bet this will be a great place to see a Townsend solitaire, because I know they love to eat these. These kinds of connections are what every teacher hopes for, and I... I'm grateful to be flying on this learning journey right alongside my students. This is Dr. Joseph Kozlowski, and I am wild about outdoor education in Utah.
Hi, I'm Mary Lane, Events Coordinator for the Cache Valley Gardeners Market. To help us better understand the health and financial benefits of purchasing and consuming locally grown specialty crops, USU's Create Better Health and Utah Public Radio produced the radio series and podcast program, Cropping Up. This summer, at the Cache Valley Gardeners Market, the Cropping Up Project will focus on ways to help kids prepare fun snacks featuring Utah's specialty crops. Each Saturday, from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., look for the Cropping Up banner at the USU Create Better Health booth 199 North Main in Logan. I'm Mary, and I will see you at the market. Utah Public Radio is partnering with the Cache Valley Chamber of Commerce and Women in Business to help support local women through scholarships. UPR is collecting new and used jewelry for a jewelry sale happening during the Cache Business Women's Conference in November. Donate some of your favorite blings, including new and used necklaces, bracelets, rings, and other jewelry items you no longer use. UPR will collect those jewelry donations now at our Logan USU studios across from Aggie Ice Cream during regular business hours. Look for the white building below the large radio tower at 700 North and 1200 East and donate some of your favorite blings and help support women in business and scholarships for women. Details at UPR. You are listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at UPR.org.